Most of us have the best of intentions to eat better, cut back on takeout and delivery, and spend more time with our family, you know, like around the dinner table. And then real life happens. Gobble is the meal prep delivery service designed for real life. With Gobble, no matter how crazy your schedule is, you can still get a nutritious homemade dinner on the table because it only takes 15 minutes. I swear to God, 15. There's no planning, shopping, or even actually prepping. They shouldn't call it a meal prep delivery service. They should just call it a meal service. Because Gobble has an army of sous chefs that do all the time-consuming work for you. They pick out the highest ingredients, and then they do the peeling and chopping and marinating and creating of perfect sauces and all that stuff. And you just have to put it together. And it really does take 15 minutes or less. And they have all sorts of options, low-carb, vegetarian, gluten-free, dairy-free. The kit is delivered fresh to your doorstep. It only takes one pan to prepare a healthy, delicious meal. Cleanup is quick. And again, 15 minutes. My husband and I tried this out recently because we had um, one of those days where one of us, okay, it was me that said I was going to cook, and then it was a long day and I didn't want to cook. And we allow ourselves one delivery night a week. And I was going to play the delivery night card. And then I remember it. Oh, yeah, we have those gobble meals. And so I had my husband literally set a timer. And it was on the table. I'm, I'm going to tell you if I hadn't been also listening to various podcasts, it would have been well under 15 minutes. And it was delicious. It's as good as homemade. It is homemade. You made it. Now, Gobble is offering my listeners a fantastic limited deal. Six meals for just $36 plus free shipping. See what a difference Gobble can make with your dinner routine. They're offering my listeners this fantastic limited time deal, six meals for just $36 plus free shipping. That's dinner for two for three nights for $36. It is only available if you go to my special URL. Go to gobble.com slash friends. Again, that's gobble, G-O-B-B-L-E dot com slash friends. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, the show where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. Today's show is about differences and divides of a little bit of a different sort. If you're listening to this show, I presume you saw Michael Cohen's testimony in Congress this week. And we saw the main players of the Trump drama on that stage, Michael Cohen, Trump, Russia. But just off stage was another cast of characters the women of Trump world. Melania, Ivanka, and brought out for a cameo, Lynn Patton. And I'm actually interested in those characters. I think a lot of us are. And that's why we decided this week to have on Nina Burley. She is the author of Golden Handcuffs, The Secret History of Trump's Women. And their story is a story about differences and divides, and unlikely alliances and messy coalitions. If you're looking for maybe specific answers about the Trump marriages and the Trump women, salacious stuff about who's having sex with whom, and the book has some of that. No, I'll, I'll do Nina a favor. It has a lot of that. But even more important, the Trump women are a lens for understanding Trump himself. And with that in mind, Nina Burley. Nina, thank you for coming on the show. You're welcome, and thank you for having me. Well, you have written a fascinating book about a fascinating subject, and I feel like I want to dive in with the title, <laughs> Golden Handcuffs. Some people might dispute that this is a good description of the relationship between Trump and his women. That's true. The title was dreamed up by some of the editors at Gallery, and it wasn't mine originally, but I think it's brilliant. I think that it 
accurately depicts certainly almost all of his relationships because his relationships, as you can see even with Michael Cohen yesterday, all underneath them, there's a sort of implied threat of blackmail or taking away financial support. And emotional blackmail, literal blackmail, is really kind of at the basis of this man's relationships with men and women. And you see how that sort of seeps out with the um, Matt Getz, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, the Florida congressman who um, tweeted about Michael Cohen's alleged affair this week and then got himself in trouble and backtracked for witness tampering. You know, I'm torn because part of me wants to go very much on the news right now mm-hmm. and, and talk about the ways that what you've written like, intersects with like the immediate news cycle. But also you did so much great investigative reporting that goes so deep in his Trump's relationship with these women. But I wonder if what we should do here is sidebar some of the super timely stuff and instead, you know, pan back. Because I think you've definitely like given us a structure for how to interpret Trump's relationships in general just with that little snapshot. And now, like, let's pan backwards because your definition of Trump's women isn't just his wives and not just his daughter. You actually include his mother and grandmother in the list of Trump's women who you do this deep dive on. First, I guess, you know, you, you point out in the book, we have not heard much about his grandmother at all. But you think she's very important. Why? I do think she was very important because she was part of the family until he was almost 20 years old. And she was an important figure in the Trump family life as he was growing up. Uh, she was very close to his father, Fred. In fact, um, my psychoanalyst friends say that his father was actually never able to grow up and become a man. This is one of the sort of pop psychology theories about what's going on there because his mother was part of his life until he was in his 60s, Fred Trump. But I think that you actually in the book do a really good job of talking about like why she's important for understanding Donald. She's important for understanding Donald because she was, first of all, an immigrant deprived of her homeland, homesick, had uh, very close ties to the German community and passed down to her son and through him to her grandson a real sense that German people are cleaner than other people, German blood is strong. You see Trump saying this in a documentary that was done about the town where the Trumps come from in Germany. It's a German documentary, and you see him talking about how clean Germans are, and that blood is strong, and his grandmother was a big influence in his childhood because she was his mother got sick and um, disappeared, basically was in the hospital for a long time after when Donald was two years old. And so his grandmother was um, kind of stepping in, and she was she was a stern and thrifty woman, not a warm and huggable uh, grandmother. And mm-hmm. I think that's probably where he gets his germophobia. And then we also sort of get a hint at how he treats women from her, right? And I would say two themes emerge, even going back to his grandmother. One is that as important as she is, she's kind of written out of history. Exactly. Right? Yes. Which is a theme. <laughs> yes. Like right away, she starts getting written out, right, with Fred. That's right. Women in the Trump world and in his father's household, certainly, 
women were in secondary roles, you know, they they would never have uh, celebrated the fact that, hey, the Trump organization was founded by an immigrant woman. I mean, what a great up-by-the-bootstrap story. What a great selling point if you were running for, um, say, president of a diverse nation of immigrants. <laughs> but that's not something that they celebrate. And in fact, contrary to that, the Trump household was also I think through Fred, a place where women's biology, uh, you know, women's bodies, there there was a kind of a primal taboo about them, uh, where Fred Trump instructed his daughter not to use the word pregnant. He said, you know, your mother had five children and we never ever used that word in this household. And you see that kind of primal taboo, that, you know, kind of um, ancient shamans in Africa, let's say, in ancient kind of <laughs> rabbinical um, rules about bodily fluids and women's bodies um, and menstruating women, you see that coming in in Donald's attitudes towards women. And it, it explains a lot about, you know, even the end of his first marriage, which was a successful marriage to Ivana. With, you know, she bore him three children. And during the divorce, he said to Liz Smith, according to Liz Smith, the gossip columnist for the New York Post, who was one of his people that he would call up and chat with, he said to her, I can't have sex with a woman who's had children. And you see what happened with Melania in her postpartum year. That's mm-hmm. when he has those affairs that he had to pay the hush money for, allegedly. Let's keep saying that. Um, he had to pay, allegedly, hush money to uh, two women, a porn star and a Playboy bunny. Why does he gravitate towards porn stars and Playboy bunnies? Why is that sort of plastic, fantastic, Vegas showgirl, Barbie doll woman what he wants? It's because it goes all the way back to this, um, you know, the things that he was taught in his childhood growing up in the 40s and 50s in a household headed by Fred Trump. And it's almost, you trace back also this thriving immigrant theme the tryhardism, as the youth might say it today, they're tryhards, right? Like they're always kind of on the outside looking in to mm-hmm. real wealth and real glamour. Mm-hmm. And to me, that explains a little bit of, of Trump's fascination or, or attraction to the Playboy Bunny and, and plastic fantastic types, because that's a what he thinks a rich guy's idea of a beautiful woman is. Right. Just as he is the um, the poor man's idea of a rich man, right? Right. Yeah. That also has to do with his mother, who we haven't talked Mm -hmm. about yet. His mother, also an immigrant, also an up-by-the-bootstraps story, grew up the 10th child of a a fisherman, an island off the coast of Scotland, muddy, cold, probably had a couple of dresses. They went to church. It's a very religious island called the Isle of Lewis, probably had an eighth-grade education, and she left at the age of, I think, 18, 17 or 18, uh, got on a ship and came over to New York following in the footsteps of a couple of older sisters who were already here. And in those days, this is the late 1920s, the great families of New York liked to have butlers and maids from the British Isles. Mm -hmm. And her sisters were already involved in this community but they were married. One of them was married to a butler in a great house. And um, one of the things that I found out that most really, to me, the most interesting little historical tidbit that I uncovered was at the New York Public Library, they keep copies of the U.S. Census. 
And in the 1920s, the U.S. Census was kept by hand, and you could see the name Marianne McLeod, that was her name, uh, at 19, arrived in New York, and her first address in New York was the Carnegie household, mm. uh, Andrew Carnegie's household. In I mean, Andrew was dead by then, but his widow, Louise, was one of the great women of New York, ma- major philanthropist, hosting world leaders, going to the opera every other day. Cultural leaders were, were always in and out of this house, and it was a massive house. It's the closest thing to um, to a castle, probably, that Americans would have had at that time. And, um, you know, had a two-story organ in the front area and, and marble, double marble staircase sweeping down, like, uh, you know, very luxurious. And this fisherman's daughter uh, was suddenly inside this place. And I think being around Louise Carnegie and having that be her first experience of America probably left her with the yearning for the royal and the her obsession with the royal that Donald Trump actually talks about in his book, The Art of the Deal. And I think that attitude about money and luxury was at odds with um, Elizabeth Chris Trump's, the grandmother's attitudes, and also at odds certainly with Fred Trump's attitudes about money. They thought she was ridiculous. And uh, mother-in-law was very hard on her. But I think that yearning passed directly down into Donald. And that's why you ha- you see he has to put these gilded tees on everything. That's why he has to turn his apartment in New York into this Versailles. That's why he's always talking about the classy. That was his word, you know, in New York for many years. It's classy. It's the classiest thing you can, you know. And uh, I think that comes a lot from uh, the mother. I think she's the kind of, that's the sort of the rosebud of his uh, his, his sense of, of being on the outside looking in at the castle. As classy as his rosebud, perhaps. Um, but it's interesting to me, he manages to combine sort of the worst aspects of these two ways of thinking about wealth, which is that he's incredibly stingy, right? Like his dad and his grandmother. He's notoriously cheap, but also he's very into glitz. Totally. So, And that's the Trump brand kind of, right? Mm-hmm. Is glamour on the cheap. Glamour it's the on gold the cheap. Plate. Never, never pay your Retail. vendors their last yep. bill. Yep, it's gold plate, not gold. And I, I want to make clear for people that, that are curious about the book, it's fascinating. But you you say right up front, you know, this isn't about their sex lives. This isn't about salacious gossip. This isn't about whether or not he he has regular sex with Melania. Like that's up for other people's speculation. And instead, like what you do in the book is is use these women as kind of a lens to understand Trump a little better. And I want to revisit, you know, the breaking news that's been happening and and whether or not the Cohen hearings actually in some ways dramatize what you've learned about Trump's relationships with women. I mean, Michael Cohen is kind of the um, – he could narrate the movie if this were a movie. He's, he's the bag man. He knows where all of the secrets are and he was the fix-up guy. But, you know, there are lots of other enablers, and there also are in New York a whole lot of other men who were kind of a lot like Trump in the 80s and the 90s and participating in, you know, the modelizer world where there were these rich guys who liked to have 
uh, models around them. And the model agencies would send models to these parties that they had. And Donald Trump, after Ivana, really became not just steeped in that world, but a real principal figure in that he realized that his avocation, I think, was kind of to be a Pygmalion for women. Somebody who could, you know, he had to buy the pageants, he had to have a his own model agency, you know, partly because these guys were all trying to outdo each other on, you know, youngest and sexiest woman on the on the arm, but also because that's how he was showing his love for these women, I think, if if you can call it love. I mean, you, you see him telling Stormy Daniels, you know, I can get you on my TV show. And Marla Maples, with Marla Maples, you know, who was much younger. I mean, she was in her 20s when she met him. You know, he was offering her, baby, I can get you into magazines and I can get you photo spreads and um, I can get you onto Broadway. And and that appealed to, um, certainly appealed to Marla Maples, but it also appealed to him in some way that he was able to brand these women. And branding women and commodifying the feminine became his, really, his thing for decades. And the women who signed up with him, the wives, his daughter, who has no really no choice, they participated in this commodification and branding of the feminine for decades. And that's who our president is now. And the women around him, I mean, the reason that I, the original reason why I got interested in them was I was there on election night at the Hilton. And I watched him come on stage with, you know, the entourage of these gazelles, all just absolutely camera ready in, you know, perfectly straightened hair. The daughters-in-law, too, they all kind of look alike. The four-inch heels, which they don't have to look down while they're walking on them. There's a great deal of rigor that goes into being able to do that. And I thought, these are the face of American womanhood now. I mean, it just went from, you know, pantsuit Hillary to to this, the reality show TV-ready, camera-ready person, woman, you know, and in one hour, uh, those women became the role models for our daughters and the public face of American womanhood. I mean, you know, we can argue about whether they are, but that's actually what happened. I think it's important for us to remember that and to think about what that is and why it's perfectly fine with a lot of American women across the country, that those types of relationships, which are transactional and the type of the image that these women are projecting and that have participated in commodifying the feminine and using the feminine to sell products, you know, what that means for us. I think it's important. And that's that's part of when you say, you know, I didn't get into their sex lives and I didn't get into the salacious. Um, I mean, there's some of there's there's a lot. It's kind of a high low book. There's there's <laughs> a lot in there that's funny. And that is that gets to the kind of ridiculousness and outrageousness of these relationships and the way these women are treated and, and the way that they're what they're willing to do to be in his orbit but it also is kind of trying to analyze or talk about critique, I guess, that, you know, what they are and what they mean for us as American women. Come for the tidbits about the sex lives. Stay for the commodification of the Yes, feminine. exactly. Article is an online-only furniture company. 
They eliminate all the layers of traditional retail and keep prices low and quality high. There are no showrooms, no salespeople, just savings. It is beautiful, kind of Scandinavian style of furniture, like a certain company I could name that's a big blue and white box, but much, much cooler not that much more expensive, and a wider variety of styles. My husband and I recently did a refresh of our bedroom. Uh, We got a chair and a light from Article. And you know what? It only had to pay $49 for shipping because that's all you are going to pay from Article. Since they're online only, every order is shipped at a flat rate of $49. And if you need help getting set up, Article has options for in-room delivery, not just to your door, but actually in the room, and for assembly assistance. And Article is offering my listeners $50 off their first purchase of $100 or more. To claim, go to article.com slash friends and the discount will be applied at checkout. That's article.com slash friends for $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. Most desk chairs we're familiar with try to lock the human body into 90 degree angles. When it comes to healthy posture, however, there is no such thing as a perfect position. We just weren't meant to sit all day or stand all day. And we definitely weren't meant to sit at perfect 90 degree angles on a stiff chair behind a desk. Our bodies were designed to move. And that's why, although Foley is known for their Jarvis standing desk, that's just the foundation of a whole kind of palette of healthier ways to work. They have standing desks, but they also have active chairs that give you the freedom to move, stretch, you know, rock around, and be in more comfortable in more different ways for your body's unique and changing needs. Foley's careful selection of active sitting chairs is what really separates them from any other furniture company. That collection supports healthier postures that align your spine, open up your hips, engage your core, and improve your circulation. You'll feel relief immediately, and it's your body and back that will thank you. It's a smarter, healthier way to work, a more balanced and human way to work. To get your body moving in your workspace, go to fully.com slash friends. That's F-U-L-L-Y dot com slash friends. Fully. Desk, chairs, and other things to keep you moving. Journalist Mehdi Hassan is known around the world for his televised takedowns of presidents and prime ministers. He hosts Upfront on Al Jazeera and is a columnist for The Intercept. And in his new podcast, Deconstructed, Mehdi unpacks a game-changing news event of the week while challenging the conventional wisdom in a tight 30-minute package, a little quicker than what we do here. He starts his show with his take on one topic and what the mainstream news is getting wrong or what context is being missed. And then he goes into a deep analysis and conversation with his guest or guests of the week. And get this, his guests have included Judd Apatow, Bernie Sanders, and Hassan Minhaj. So he kind of covers the gamut, I would say, in terms of who you might be expecting. Um, It's everyone from comedians to politicians to, for instance, Stefan Clark's fiance. So you're going to hear from a lot of different people. And the show has covered such topics as the violence in Gaza from the perspective of Israeli activists against the occupation and, of course, police shootings, as through the eyes of the fiancé of Stephon Clark. Also, he's talked about the dangers of John Bolton with former diplomats. As a Brit and a Muslim, an immigrant based in Donald Trump's Washington, D.C., Mehdi Hassan gives a refreshingly provocative perspective on the ups and downs of American and global politics. Deconstructed is a show that cuts through political drivel and media misinformation to give you a straight take on one big news story of the week. It is out every Friday, just like this pod. You can listen and subscribe at theintercept.com slash deconstructed or on any podcast platform.
I think it's important to take on what you said is a thing happening. Some women are perfectly okay with the Trump brood. I don't know what to call it, the Trump family, I guess it is, the Trump women uh, being the face of American femininity. And I think we see that most clearly in kind of cross ideologically in attempts on the right and the left to make Ivanka and Melania heroes or heroines, I guess I should say. What do you think about that? What do you think about the free Ivanka or the free Melania memes and how excited people get when she bats his hand away? Well, of course, in the beginning, the revulsion factor among my friends and women and, you know, on the on the progressive uh, feminist side of things uh, was so strong that any of those signs were, you know, seized upon. And you and you see that in, you know, the free Melania meme, which came started at the Women's March. But um, I don't actually think that Melania wants to be freed. And I don't think that Melania is... Um, Melania, in my view, wants security, um, wanted luxury, had, like Ivana, grown up in on the other side of the Iron Curtain where they looked across this wall at, at the, you know, the, the luxuries of the branded West, you know, the cars and the, the designer clothes and they felt deprived of those things. They had childhoods in which they were, they believed that they were deprived of those things and then once they were able to get their hands on them, you know, they, if, if Ivana certainly became, you know, an uber capitalist, even though she was raised in a collectivist education and spoke Russian, uh, really was a Soviet citizen, you know, became an, an uber capitalist and a, and a self-brander and a mini Donald. But Melania is somewhat different. She's more of a homebody. She wants security. She wants luxury. She wants a place for her family to stay with her. She lived in a kind of a Slovenian-speaking bubble in the years after their marriage. The parents were over here a lot, um, especially after the child was born. And I think that's one reason why during the campaign, when she first started to be trotted out to speak, you you noticed that she could barely speak English because she'd spent so much time, you know, with her family. And she's kind of a homebody. Whereas Ivanka, Ivanka's an interesting cat because, you know, she is obviously... I shouldn't say this. I'm not her psychiatrist, but I, I think that from childhood, a childhood in that milieu, in the world that Donald Trump was creating in the middle of this media hurricane, storm after storm on uh, you know the paparazzi screaming questions to her about her father's sex life when she was eight, she's very damaged and has managed to put all that damage inside somewhere and put it aside and stay uh, loyal to her father, you know, whereas other daughters in other families and other wealthy families might have had a break with their father or had, you know, other problems. She doesn't appear to have them. She's, she is fully participating in the Trump-branded system, and mm-hmm. she is she thinks her father's a genius. I mean, that's been reported. She wants to be like her mother. She wants to be kind of a mini Donald. She thinks that he's a branding genius and she's a strategic person, especially when it comes to her own publicity. Very strategic in terms of amassing power, I think. She's working quietly in and around the White House, but also, you know, she's collected the home numbers, I would imagine, by now of all of the world leaders. And I think if the Mueller investigation doesn't snare her up, which is a big if, 
because of her role in the Trump organization as Donald's surrogate in some of these meetings in Baku and places like that where dicey things were going on, if she manages not to get snared up, I think that she is the future of the Trump brand, certainly politically. I, I would imagine that she could run for office or, or would, could be talked into doing something like that. Yeah, you mentioned that she wants to be the first female president. Well, that's what they say. I mean, that's, you know, (laughs) the Republicans would love nothing more, I think, than to have, you know, a female who is, you know, attractive, utterly camera ready and very suave and and well-spoken. And I mean, the other thing to say about Ivanka is as the Trump family of immigrants – you know, craved insiderness coming from first, you know, Germany craved money and then wealth and success and then craved, as Donald did, acceptance into the class system of Manhattan and would never actually get it. Ivanka is the one who was born to the manor and who does have that. Um, She went to the finest prep schools. She speaks you know, kind of with a prep schooly accent, and she has been successful in presenting herself as somebody in New York who was operating in, you know, kind of more progressive circles. I mean, she raised money for Cory Booker. That doesn't actually say speak to progressivism, but more to Wall Street. <laughs> but she um, she raised money for Cory Booker, and she's been, you know, they was thought of certainly by her peers here in Manhattan as, as one of them, you know, a kind of a, uh, you know, not an anti, uh, anti-choice, anti not somebody who was aligned with um, white supremacist types, but she is um, hunkered down. What I was told is that she and Jared regard the Mueller investigation, or at least they did, regarded as as insignificant as, you know, Twitter trolls. And, you know, I mean, I, I find that kind of believable because, you know, if, as Jared Kushner after the Khashoggi murder was, I think, on record saying, you know, it'll just blow over. It's fine to MBS. And I think that's kind of how they think about this. I think they think they're going to be able to, to uh, ride it out and come out victorious. Well, speaking of, we've gotten to to very much right in the middle of the news cycle with those comments. So I have to ask you some direct questions, which is, do you find it believable that Ivanka would not know about the Russia Tower project? No. I mean, there's no way she didn't know about it. And um, her spa by Ivanka was going to be in that project. And then another yes or no question, perhaps, although elaboration is welcome. Is Don Jr. the dumb one? Of the three siblings? I guess, yes. Yeah, I, I, I've i been told, but Eric is actually a lot smarter, that, that SNL has it wrong, that it's the other way around, that Eric is a smart one. And that it is true, like, so um, Cohen's description of how it was unusual that Don Jr. would be in charge of something. Yes. Like, <laughs> and then another sort of on the on the news thing here, and, and I apologize the audience maybe for not bringing this up right away, but this alleged tape that does not or does exist of Trump hitting Melania. I didn't even know that that was a thing people gossiped about. Is that something that, that Oh yeah. Even That's gossiped about here. A lot of um oh. you know it's it's definitely part of the Trump lore in New York um that this tape exists. There was something that the um National Enquirer did a catch and kill on 
There's no doubt about that. Um, it had to do with video, and um, I think Murdoch got involved. You, you hear about these things. Now, I, I you hear these things. I don't know whether they're true or not, but I think the, the, the catch and kill of something has been reported, and, and that thing is often said to be this elevator tape where he smacked her. But, of course, Cohen on the record yesterday brought that up or was asked about it by Carolyn Maloney and then denied that that Donald would ever do anything like that to Melania. That leads me to my next direct question, which is Cohen was on the record as saying he doesn't believe that it could even be possible that Trump would never do that. What do you think? Well, do I think that Trump is capable of violence against women? I think all you need to do is go to um, Ivana's divorce deposition where she talks about the rape or marital rape to but we just call it rape around here. Don't worry about it. We're, you know, all you need to do is look at that to think, well, she went on the record with that in, um, at a time when people didn't talk as much about it, way, way before Me Too, way, way before rape, you know, anti-rape, take back the night stuff. So I have to say um, that I think he probably is capable of. You do see also in the Harry Hurt biography, there was a door ripped off of a hotel room in Atlantic City after a fight that he had with Marla. And, you know, you hear rumors, but I don't actually know. One of the things that I kind of stress in the book, um, I open the book with an interview with somebody who was really kind of knows, knows them and lives near them, who conducted the entire interview on a piece of paper with uh, wouldn't answering my questions with um, little maps and, and writing names down and writing information down and then crumpling up the pages and throwing them away or taking them out with her actually out of the restaurant. I mean, that's the level of paranoia that these insider women have in terms of they are the keepers of ugly dark secrets about these men, whether those ugly dark secrets just as um, benign are as disgusting as seeing Donald Trump without his um, his fake tan, or with his just in his underwear. I mean, these are this is what Melania knows, and and knows probably a lot more than that. And uh, so they are the keepers of these secrets, and you know, the having those secrets puts them in a in a kind of a, a scary position when you're dealing with somebody like Donald Trump, whose relationships again are based on emotional or implied threats of actual blackmail. And that brings us back to Cohen's golden handcuffs. Something that I found myself thinking about as I, I read the book, because you do include Ivanka, you know, and, and also his mother and grandmother is one of his women. So this is not just about his sexual or romantic relationships. No, not at all. But I was thinking about how you mentioned earlier in the interview something about if you call, if, how he expresses love, if he feels love or... I think that he doesn't have a huge emotional vocabulary. I think he has a very limited one. And I, I wonder if he only really knows how to express a bond with someone in very limited ways. I think you're right. And I think that the expression of love is the branding and the mm -hmm. um, I'm bringing you into my brand. I'm bringing you into my, my circle. And, you know, of course, Ivanka is at the top of that. She's in the circle. She's his surrogate. Um, one of my sources who's um, an expert in international money laundering um, who's been following the Trump organization's activities uh, said of Ivanka, 
you know, because I said, Does, do you think Ivanka maybe didn't understand what was going on or that the Mamadovs in Baku were, you know, hooked up with the Red Guard in Iran and didn't understand that there were this fugitive money launderer was involved with the Panama deal that she was in on? Do you think she didn't understand? And he said, uh, I look at it this way. When Ivanka was in the room, the guys at the table looked at her and thought, I am Donald Trump and I approve of this message or I am Donald Trump and I approve of this deal. If she was there, she was his surrogate to that degree. It's another third love ad. And I believe I am wearing my third love pride. I'm not going to check. And I think today I just want to emphasize the revelation that I had that I am a half cup size. I didn't know that half cups existed And I certainly didn't know that I was one until I decided, you know, I have trouble with like one side kind of always slipping out. And I thought maybe, maybe I will try this half cup thing. And guess what? Slippage solved. And it is a very beautiful bra as well. I happen to really like their new cotton line. They're really cute. They are plain-ish, which is to say that they are classic cut bras, but they have a little bit of flair to them. They have a tiny little keyhole kind of cut out above the chest band. I'm not describing it very well, but you have to trust me. They are classic and cool without being like overtly sexy. Um, They're great bras for pleasing yourself, basically. And that's who we should wear our bras for ourselves. I've talked about Third Love before, and if you're a regular listener, you know the many reasons you should try them besides the half cup sizes. You don't have to go into a store to get fitted. Uh, You can do it all online. There's a fit quiz. There's no one going to touch your parts. And also they have a money back guarantee. They have millions. I shouldn't say millions. They literally have dozens of styles and they have the widest variety of sizes you, I think, of any other company, A through G, I believe. And also, again, all those half cup sizes. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they're offering my listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash friends to get that perfect fitting bra. Again, that's 15% off your first purchase. Go to thirdlove.com slash friends for 15% off today. I don't feel like we can end this conversation without at least touching on the sexualization of Ivanka because it's a thing everyone talks about and he seems to bring it into the spotlight himself quite a lot. And to me, that is kind of a function of, of what we were talking about him having a limited number of ways of expressing his relationships or expressing his emotions. Like I've always seen it as just he's just giving her the ultimate compliment by saying he would date her. I agree. I don't think who can say what really their relationship is. And that I say that in front of the book. Like I don't know who he's having sex with. I don't I'm not, you know, going there. That's I leave that to other other reporters. But I think that based on her what I understand of her and Jared's relationship, I don't think that he is, and the, even the fact that she chose Jared, um, who has an equally monstrous father, I don't think that she has that kind of sexualized relationship with him. I think he sexualizes her for that very reason. You're exactly right. Hey, baby, you know, you look like a million bucks. Oh, my daughter's so hot. Look at her. That is the highest compliment that he can give to somebody, a woman, certainly. He does have these trusted women in his life who aren't sexualized. 
you know, and Sarah Sanders is probably one of them. But going all through his life, he's he's had these women that he trusts. In fact, he trusts them more than he trusts men because he's in this alpha male uh, struggle to the death with other men. I mean, that's mm-hmm. how he looks at his at, as, at his situation in life. And so there are certain women who are like his grandma, um, who are you know these kind of stern and they can they're efficient and they keep him on time and they bring him his diet cokes and. Ivanka is kind of crossing the line. That's a whole other conversation. You got to shrink to have that conversation. Right. And else, but I think that's sort of the sexualization part is like he's elevated her above like Yes, exactly. the the help meet. Yes. Right? She is, is the she, ultimate. she's so important, he might even have sex with her. Yeah, she is the ultimate Trump brand. The the, yes. the Trump branded woman at its zenith. And I wonder if that also kind of I was you know, with the Korea summit in the news and Trump talking about him and Kim falling in love. Yeah, I just think that's his, you know, he, he has this like weird sort of Frank Sinatra crooning thing going on. And I think he just I was thinking like of it again as he only has a limited vocabulary for how he feels about people. Well, that's for sure. I mean, you've, you're, you're hitting on something there, but he has a limited vocabulary because he probably had ADHD or something and he doesn't mm-hmm. read very much. I mean, we haven't gotten into the fact that he paid. He he had Michael Cohen threaten Penn Wharton and who, wherever else that he'd been at school not to release any information because his family knows he couldn't read. I mean, I had a source say it was a big joke in the family, and when he published the Art of the Deal, that's when the family sort of joked and said, "Oh well, he must have read one book now." <laughs> and of course, we now know that Tony Schwartz wrote the whole thing. He didn't. He may not even have read that one. Do you think he literally has trouble reading, like he's dyslexic, or? I think that he has ADHD, and I don't. I think that's an intentional problem. But again, mm-hmm. I'm not his doctor. I don't. <laughs> I think he must be able to read some things, right? He's, yeah. he's been able to read documents, but I bet you he's not reading like his legal documents. And you know, we see these reports of the intelligence agencies briefing him with with, you know, pictograms or something. So I think there is there is definitely a, a reading issue there that was mm-hmm. never addressed. And I get into that also in the book with what the parents had what his parents had to deal with and what tools they had back in the forties and fifties to deal with a, a child like him. There is one thing that you haven't touched on that is in the news that I think is worth um, mentioning and that is the um, arrests down in Florida, the prostitution ring. Which I think is, you know, those are his buddies, you know, the NFL craft, the, the NFL. And there's like a hedge fund guy, too, hedge fund, I think. Major, major donors to uh, to Trump PAC. And I think, you know, there's probably, I think you, you can say that in some ways Donald is like the John in chief in this country, you know, in their – the way that they look at women, like Steve Wynn, his buddy, you know, who, mm. who um, you know, they, it was part of that hotel's system in Vegas to get employees to have sex with Steve Wynn. That's just how they look at women. Like one of the people who's part of their circle for a while said they're just, you know, young women were sexual snacks to these guys. And it just shows, shows such a gigantic lack of compassion and imagination that, you know, they could be um, in, you know, this Florida massage parlor where these Chinese women are brought, you know, basically as uh, indentured servants. And these men are paying, you know, they're billionaires and they're paying $100 for a hand job. And why? You know, what is that? So I think that the president whose attitudes towards women, 
I'm not saying that he's a particularly even he was involved in any of that, but his attitudes towards women are, um, you know, they're part of that structure and that framework. I think that's really important, actually. I'm glad you brought it up. I want to sort of do a twist on this idea of that they're sexual snacks and say they're like junk food to them. And I'm not saying that. I'm saying that's, I think, how they think about it. I am sure you're right. Disposable, empty calories. Thank you so much for joining me, Nina. Yeah, thank you for having me. You take care. And that is it for this week's show. And you, super fans who are listening right now, I will also let you know that that is it for this season. I bet you didn't know we had seasons. We do. And now we are taking a break between them. With Friends Like These is taking a month off for some very much deserved self-care. We'll do some introspection about the show, about ourselves, about our lives. I invite you to do the same. And actually, a little more seriously, if you want to write the show with thoughts and suggestions at withfriendslikepod at gmail.com, please do so. We're going to have some, I guess I have to call them exciting changes, but not huge ones. And uh, maybe a few surprises. I do really, really mean it this time, too. Please. It's going to be a whole month now. So take care of yourselves.